Welcome to episode six of On the Balcony. My name is Michael Kohler, and I'm your host. In today's episode, we continue to examine Ron Heifetz's landmark book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, and look at chapter six with the title, On a Razor's Edge. If you've been following along this season, you know that we have explored the distinction between leadership and authority quite a bit. One of the biggest myths is that leadership becomes easier the higher you get in an organization. And while it's true that authority comes with an enormous set of resources for the practice of leadership, it also comes with constraints. And that is what this chapter is about. People in high roles of authority are expected to protect, to direct, to organize. And that all works beautifully when the nature of the problem is technical, when it is a routine problem. But when the work is adaptive, when it requires learning, that is where it gets tricky. Instead of providing direction, you need to frame the challenge and help people come up with their own new approaches and capacities. Instead of protecting people, you need to disclose the threats to the people. And instead of orienting people, you need to let conflict surface and challenge roles and norms that are no longer working. This work is hard, and that's why we often see people in authority roles being more protective of the status quo and somewhat risk-averse. Our guest this week has a lot of experience with these dynamics. Ian Palmquist has worked as an advocate for LGBTQ plus rights for over 20 years. He has held roles of authority, but also worked with senior authority figures, such as state legislatures to address issues of social justice. Ian is currently the deputy director at Equality Federation and the president of the Adaptive Leadership Network. Our conversation taps into the difficult work of partnering with the opposition, with people in power while disappointing your own people when the speed of change is not as fast as it could be. A quick heads up, the conversation took place about a week after the US Supreme Court overruled Roe and the right to abortions. Let's dive right into the conversation with Ian. Welcome, Ian. So good to see you. Hey, Michael. So glad to be here. It's such a joy to have you on the show. We'll get started with a chapter that we'll look at today, which is On the Razor's Edge. And I'm really curious, as you know, you re-engage with the book, as I re-engage with the book, like what core ideas stood out from, from this chapter? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really amazing about this chapter is that it homes in on how limiting the role of authority can be, um, how few tools an authority figure has in some ways um, to lead, but how vital those are um, and the, the, that that role authority figures can provide holding a group to a task and really staying focused on that adaptive work at hand can be so critical. Yeah. And it's surprising often, right, how the, the constraints of authority that I think this is the chapter where he introduced the, the metaphor, the straitjacket, authority as a straitjacket. <laughs> <laughs> because we often think that, you know, once you're in charge, 
Like that's where all the power is, the power for change making, the power for progress, but but apparently not. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the other thing that stood out for me was it feels like this is the chapter that really starts to get into raising the heat and the authority figures role in raising the heat and modulating that conflict um, to hold a group to task. Yeah, and we we talked about that throughout throughout the season in, in several chapters, kind of the the idea that disequilibrium comes with adaptive work, that heat comes with with adaptive work and and the idea that authority figures are often called in to reduce the heat, to restore order, to fix the problem. But you know what what if these are problems, technical not technical problems, but adaptive problems that can't be fixed and solved, that need some collective learning, that need some, you know, people to face into some losses. And I think that's that's what I'm sensing. That's that's at the heart of of this chapter. Yeah, exactly. That expectation of delivering stability, solving problems, taking care of things for the group is one of the real key limitations that authority figures face. I can't wait to dive into that more deeply with you, Ian. And I want to, you know, give you a little space to introduce yourself. And I think it's particularly interesting that we have this conversation with you on the role of authority, because it's very often that <laughs> in the work that you do, the authority figures are on the other side of the table. <laughs> but I'm sure you'll tell us a little bit more about that. Um, Ian, who are you? Yeah, oh, this question's about authority it's been on my mind uh, rereading this. Um, but yeah, to start, um, so I'm a cisgender white guy. I grew up in the American South in North Carolina, and I'm a gay man and have spent most of my career um, over the last 20 years working for LGBTQ plus equality, you know, starting at first in North Carolina in a tiny, scrappy nonprofit. I was the half of a one and a half person staff <laughs> right out of college. And more recently, um, you know, kind of moving into a national space. Um, I'm deputy director at Equality Federation now, helping support state LGBT advocates across the country. But I really love that small nonprofit space. Um, I love bringing people together and showing them how they can help create change in their communities. And we connected through um, our connections to Kennedy School, and it was really interesting and intimidating for me. Um, I kind of first got connected to this framework because I um, was sort of drafted into a fellowship to do a three-week exec ed program at Kennedy School. Um, and I think we just had like a few hours with Marty Linsky, um, who with Ron wrote the second book. And it really just gave me this sense of, wow, there's like language to talk about all of these things that I've been grappling with and haven't known how to even speak about them, much less solve some of those problems. So in this adaptive leadership space, I'm really, I'm primarily a practitioner. Um, I do bring some of these concepts into my work supporting leaders on the ground, but I'm really primarily thinking about it as um, a tool for my own practice of leadership, you know, within my organization, within this ecosystem that is the LGBTQ plus movement or movements and within our states and communities and all of the political systems that we're a part of as well. And probably the last thing I should say is um, I'm also the board president of Adaptive Leadership Network, um, which has been such a wonderful opportunity for me to bring 
some of the organization building skills that I have to work and support this global community of change makers who engaged with adaptive leadership in some way and are really creating this space where we can like support each other and learn from each other and continue, you know, growing as we all are trying to figure out how do we practice leadership in whatever system we're in. Um, and in this moment, that feels so urgent with everything that's happening in our, our country and the world right now. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll make sure for those listeners who are interested in engaging more with the Adaptive Leadership Network, and also with the Quality Federation to to make sure the links are in the in the show notes so you can you can find both of these organizations. But what's fascinating for me is as I'm listening to you is is really that um, you're coming from an sort of advocacy activist space, and yet you know you're also holding authority roles in you know these nonprofits <laughs> where you. Over the time, you know, these organizations, as they are growing, as, as their sort of influence is getting bigger, you have both, right? You're, you're helping activists out there in the field, but you're also in charge of managing the, the operations, these organizations. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll be curious to, to hear both angles. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true of most folks. Like we are in positions of authority in some ways, and then we're also doing these things out in the world that nobody has authorized us to do. Terrific. So Ian, what quote from the chapter have you brought for us to chew on today? Well, Michael, the, you know, the chapter's title is On a Razor's Edge. And what really stood out to me was this one sentence. Yet in either case, the authority figure cuts his feet. Yet in either case, an authority cuts his feet. So I'm, I'm curious, maybe we can start by orienting that, that sentence in the chapter you know where are we <laughs> what is what what image is sort of Heifetz referring to here this is the moment where he really brings in this metaphor of the razor's edge and the idea that the balance an authority figure is trying to strike is so delicate and so narrow um, that if you're challenging your community or your group too quickly um, it's so easy to be rejected or shut down for failing to provide that stability, for failing to solve the problems for them. And at the same time, if you don't challenge the group enough, then you end up getting rejected for not making progress on this problem that the group is facing. And so this authority figure, you know, is trying to walk this like very narrow razor's edge, this balance beam to stay balanced. And I just thought this quote, yet in either case, the authority figure cuts his feet, really brought home for me the cost of trying to hold that balance, right? That, uh, that trying to exercise leadership from a position of authority is going to invite physical and mental wounds, potentially. Wow. I'm so excited to explore this quote with you. So. The first place I would love to go is actually to circle a little bit away from the text and the story. Invite you to let your sort of inner eye wander a little bit into the sphere of story, image, metaphor, loose associations. So I'm going to read the quote to you one more time and and sort of, you know, let it wash over you and see where what images come up for you. 
Yet, in either case, an authority figure cuts his feet. You know, I think it, it really raises for me, you know, particularly when I was executive director in Equality North Carolina, I was kind of, you know, in my 20s and somehow like the most visible queer person in the state. And just the, all of the pressure that brings on from this community I'm trying to work with, trying to support, trying to mobilize. And often the anger that that provokes, um, it's easy to take the anger from our opposition, right? But when the folks in our own community think we're not doing enough, um, think we're compromising when we shouldn't compromise, it's so hard not to internalize that and come away feeling like you've failed or you're harming your community. And so the emotional toll of that work was really significant at times. Yeah, I can feel that. And and it's interesting that your that the association went to your not the people that are in the opposition, right? You think about activism is so hard because you get pushback from the opposition, but you're you're talking about your own people that are impatient. Mm -hmm. What was the hardest about their impatience? I think I was in this role where I could see much more closely the political system that we were trying to change. You know, I was in my suit at the state capitol every day during legislative session, working with legislators on our side, talking to folks we were trying to persuade. And it gave me so much more sense of like, what are the constraints? What are the pressures? What is really possible for us to achieve? And then folks out in the community are saying, you know, that's not enough. We need more. And they're absolutely right. We do need more. We needed more. And we continue to lead more. So sometimes trying to be that bridge of, we need more. You're right. Like, the system we're operating in is fundamentally wrong in many, many ways and how it's treated our people. And this is what we can do now. Yeah. I guess I'm listening to you. It sounds like it sounds torn. It's I <laughs> I guess I was reacting to this like I think I think the the metaphor Heifetz is using here is really intense on the razor's edge and cutting fighting one's feet, like yes. Like, <laughs> ouch. And yet, like I'm thinking torn, right? Which is also really intense. It's brutal. Yeah, it's trying to manage all of those expectations. You know, it, it's of course bringing me back to that wonderful line that Ron has used many times of leadership requiring us to disappoint our own people at a rate they can absorb. And I feel like I, <laughs> I did a lot of disappointing <laughs> at times uh, in, in my work on the front lines. Would you share a little bit more about that? Like, what was a moment of disappointment that was really, really hard? One of those moments uh, was we had been fighting for many years to try and stop an anti-LGBT marriage amendment uh, from being put into our state constitution. And we'd narrowly been able to hold it off thanks to the you know, democratic leadership we had at the time in the state. You know, they weren't going to do anything good for us at that point in the South, but they were holding off some of the bad stuff. This was the you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s. And then in 2010, the 
legislature shifted and the Republicans took over. And we knew that it was going to happen, that there, there was no way. And of course, we had to fight. Of course, we had to use that moment to try and change the conversation. But having this, the community looking to us to keep this from happening was almost unbearable. I actually was already planning my, my exit when that happened. And I ended up leaving before the ballot campaign started. But I just remember those, you know, last six months I was at Equality North Carolina, just feeling this overwhelming sense of everybody looking to me and this organization and probably internal fencing more than I should even. But this sense that people were looking at me to stop this and I just didn't know how. It didn't seem possible and probably wasn't possible. I'd love to shift the perspective a little bit. Much of the work, the advocacy work, is towards people, if I understand it correctly, who hold major authority roles, people who are government, you know, who are elected officials, who make, you know, lawmakers. And so I'm going to invite us to read the sentence one more time and, and imagine yourself into an experience where you dealt with somebody in authority and how you engaged with them. And let's see what comes up as we, as we re-engage that sentence, right? So yet in either case, an authority figure cuts his feet. Yeah. One of the things that I really learned in my time lobbying in the Capitol, and people may not know, a state Capitol in most states here, it's not, it's not like the Congress. It's just, you know, legislators walking the halls, they have maybe one staff person each. Um, so it's this very tight community. You're literally bumping up against each other in the halls and on the staircases. And I found a lot more empathy for some of the people who were frustrating our progress at times. I'm thinking about people like there was uh, the majority leader in the Senate for many years, Tony Rand, who was you know, from Fayetteville, kind of a conservative democratic community, trying to hold his majority in a rapidly, a state that was moving in a conservative direction politically. And going in and saying, we need you to pass LGBTQ equality bills. We need you to protect gay and trans kids from bullying in our schools. We need comprehensive sex education in our schools. And, you know, talking to him, he knew what the right thing was. That wasn't his limitation. He was maybe not the most comfortable with LGBT people. He was kind of a Southern good old boy. But he knew what the right thing to do was. And he was trying to figure out, how do I hold this majority? And what is the cost of potentially losing? You know, what, what would that mean for for reproductive rights, uh, thinking about this week here in the United States, for um, education and all of these other things that matter to the state. And so working with him and others, I really saw this person in this position of authority, this person who was going to play a key role in whether anything we proposed ever made it anywhere was a good human, like who was trying to figure out the right thing to do for his state and really worried about going too far, about 
you know, what happens if, if he or even just two or three of the folks in his caucus lost their authority, you know, lost their next election, what would the consequences be? Yeah. What became possible as a result of that? I think we were able to change our approach a little bit. We tried to home in on issues that seemed ripe enough that maybe we could move them forward without a lot of political backlash. You know, we homed in on our big push um, after years of trying to pass non-discrimination legislation and hate crimes legislation and getting nowhere. We shifted and we said, what if we just tried to do something that said bullying in schools is not okay? And that includes bullying based on sexual orientation, based on gender identity, and schools have to have a way of grappling with this. Let's put our opposition in the position where they have to be on the side of bullies, essentially, to oppose us. Um, And that made the issue easy enough in some ways that the conservative Democrats, the folks who were in districts that were right on the edge, could say, I can do this. Like, I'm not sure I can do these other things yet, but I can do this. And that got us real protections that mattered for LGBTQ plus young people. But it also got us a little bit of momentum to say, ah, okay, for the first time in North Carolina, sexual orientation is in a state law. For the first time anywhere in the South, gender identity is in a state law, even if it's in this one narrow place. And that gave us an opportunity to move forward that we might not have had if we weren't tuned into what were all of these pressures that these basically good-hearted people were feeling that were keeping them from letting us move forward. Hey there, this is Andy, facilitator and executive coach at Konu. Thanks for tuning in to On the Balcony. Are you curious to learn more about how to exercise leadership or how to thrive in times of uncertainty and change? Over the next several months, Konu is hosting a series of virtual sessions designed to help you bring some of the ideas from this podcast into your work and your life. We'll explore key leadership distinctions that can help you mobilize people to make progress in times of change, regardless of your job title, your position, or your seniority. We'll also explore practices and mindset shifts that can help you stay anchored and grounded when the heat goes up and take care of yourself over the long haul so you don't burn out. You can learn more and sign up at konu.org slash events. And as a regular listener of this podcast, you can use the code BALCONY to waive your registration fee. That's konu.org slash events. And the registration code is BALCONY. Excited to see you there. So Ian, you've been, you've been sharing these, these beautiful examples of, of boundary crossing, of working with people who are, who are different. And, you know, you mentioned we're at this moment at a, you know, very significant point with the Supreme Court ruling that just happened last week. And I'm hearing more and more people who used to be, used to have a track record of, of boundary crossing, who, who are kind of, you know, working for progressive issues, but who are sort of, you know, able to maneuver uh, both sides of the aisle more and more saying like, you know, I'm done with it. I'm losing hope. I'm really curious, you know, as much as you, you can tell, you know, it's very fresh, at least the Supreme Court development, but I'm really curious, where are you now? Is, do you still believe in that approach? Or are you saying like, you know, something is fundamentally shifting? 
I think it's a little bit of both for me, honestly. On one hand, I do think that the LGBTQ plus movement, when it's been kind of at its best and at its most successful, is when we've been willing to meet people where they are and take them on a journey with us and try to go in with as open hearts as possible. And I think that work's still really important. I think there's still a lot of people in this country who just don't understand what it means to be trans, much less what it's like to be a trans 13 or 14 year old wanting to play on your sports team that matches who you are. So I think we still have to find ways to be open and to engage with folks who are willing to engage, who are willing to have some curiosity. And at the same time, we know that this is a very calculated attempt by the far right, by Alliance Defending Freedom, by another of a number of other organizations. And they don't care about whether trans kids are actually on the sports teams. They care about activating fear. They care about mobilizing a base that is terrified of difference and terrified of a sense of losing the country, losing their place in the country. So it's really hard to find a way to engage with the folks who are really pushing this. It's hard to find a way to cross that boundary when you know it's not a genuine difference of opinion or lack of understanding. It's a really calculated attempt to gain power at the expense of others. And so I struggle. In my time in North Carolina, I spent a lot of time trying to work with Republican legislators. And we're still doing that work, but it's gotten harder and harder to find folks who are even willing to engage. And when they are willing to engage, the price they see of sticking their neck out at all on our issues is so much higher even than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So it's, it's just gotten really hard to move people particularly elected officials, when these issues have become so polarized. And what has shifted, like, as, as you are looking into, into that community? Have, have their constituencies actually shifted? Have they shifted? Are there new, new people who are in these elected roles? Like, what's, the, what's your sense on what is shifting? Yeah, I think there's a lot of complicated answers, probably. But I mean, one thing that I think about is... You know, for years, the Republican Party had formed this coalition of kind of business and elite interests with evangelical Christians and with the dog whistles, kind of the more racist part of white America. But the folks in leadership tended to not think that those elements were ever going to take over. And it feels like they really have come to the forefront in the last, you know, five, six years, especially. So I don't know that it's entirely a different group of people, but um, the power dynamics have shifted. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of straight white Americans who do feel like change is happening too quickly, that they're not sure about their place. And that's something I really want to try to stay open to and engaged with. And it's hard when it's manifesting in an attempted coup. So from a professional, you know, advocate, 
like if if I'm I'm listening to this and thinking about like boy you know I have like an uncle in my family who may fall into that camp what can we learn from you I mean we've learned a lot actually and I think when people can have those hard boundary crossing conversations and I want to say when it's physically safe to do that not asking anyone to go not asking kids to get kicked out of their house right now or whatever people need to do to take care of themselves but I think what's so important is to really go in not with arguments, but with listening and real curiosity and trying to connect. You know, I think this plays out in interpersonal relationships, but we actually did some research a few years ago where we had canvassers going door to door, talking to people in Atlanta and Cleveland and other cities about trans rights. And really going in with some curiosity about what do you think it means to be trans? Have you had an experience of what it felt like to be treated differently because of something about who you are? But when you see what our opposition is putting out there that is so fear-inducing, what does that provoke in you? And really having this curiosity to like, where are you coming from? What is actually worrying with you? And being willing to share our own stories of how we got there. You know, as queer people, most of us didn't grow up with uh, queer parents. Some did, but most of us didn't. So we had to go on our own journey to come to some understanding of this. So how do we recognize that we need to give folks some space to come on those journeys as well, that they're not going to start where we are at this point in our journey when they're just beginning. And it sounds like, you know, the gay man in me is like in touch with like how hard that work is, particularly if you're part of the marginalized community and how big the opportunity here is potentially also for allies who are maybe not for, for, for whom the pain, that pain around that topic may not be as, as present. Yeah. And I hear there's a narrative in progressive communities now that marginalized people shouldn't have to do that work for people who are in systemic power. I think that's right. Like we shouldn't have to. And when those of us who can, who have whatever other sets of privileges we have to be able to do that work, it can be incredibly powerful. I love that. And you know what? This reminds me of this, this binary that we were exploring between, you know, and I think it wasn't one of the the earlier shows, it's not just like, you know, engage and or don't engage, right? There is, there's a whole set of ways to engage. And the, the beauty about disequilibrium is if it's too hot, it's danger zone, panic zone, not good. If it's too low, it's comfort, sometimes necessary, right? Sometimes it's important to recover and to rest and take care of yourself and heal. But there's the learning zone uh, that's right in the middle where there's some heat or some sweat. And if there's ways of engaging in the collective learning, in that learning zone, you know, and maybe that is not confronting the aggressor directly, but maybe you're, you're working on the periphery, maybe you're working with allies, maybe, you're, you know, there's all kinds of ways to engage with more nuance than, you know, either I'm out there in the streets or I'm not doing anything. Absolutely. And I don't at all want to sound like the sort of open engagement is the only way, you know, I think outsider strategies, direct action, 
things that do turn up the heat that make people uncomfortable can be incredibly valuable as well. So you're right. It's about choosing how do I intervene? How do I engage in this moment that I feel up to? (laughs) Maybe it pushes my boundaries a little, but I feel up to and that might make a difference. So I have one more question before we go to our last reading of of that that text. And the case study in this chapter, uh, most of the chapter we're sort of in, in Lyndon B. Johnson's world and and hear sort of Ron Heifetz's interpretation of how he may or may not have practiced leadership from a position of power and and this this idea of like, you know, strategic waiting and letting things ripen to then make a move. The question I have for you, Ian, is is this for people who are in power who may find themselves kind of in that torn position where they, you know, may fall off on either either side or cut their feet on either side of the razor's edge. For them, what are some strategies you've seen people in authority, legislators, make good use of activists? Because that that partnership is often, you know, underutilized, right? And I think it's it is it's beautifully described in that in that chapter, kind of that that dance between people in power and people on the streets. So if somebody in power is listening, like what can they do to make use more of activists? Smart elected officials operate in partnership with advocates. I had the opportunity to learn so much working with Representative Rick Glazier, who sponsored the bullying bill that I was talking about earlier. And he was brilliant at figuring out, okay, when... When do we need a ton of media attention? When do we need a lot of emails and calls going into offices? When do we need to let it alone? And partnering with folks out in the community who could make those things happen with us to you know, create the narrative that helped him make his colleagues do the right thing, um, bring them along and see that there was public support. So it's always this interplay between what can elected officials do and where are the hearts and minds in the community that they have to have to navigate. And so I think smart elected officials find a way to do that. I remember, I'm going to probably butcher the quote a little bit, but soon after Barack Obama was elected, he said to a group of activists, you got me elected, now make me do it. Meaning bring the pressure. I think it was around Don't Ask, Don't Tell actually. Bring the pressure that helps me align these generals, these members of Congress on the Armed Services Committee. Bring the pressure. It might be directed at Obama, who's on our side, right? But bring the pressure that forces action. Yeah, well, Ian, I'm going to read the quote one final time, and I'm actually going to include the sentence before to close us out, and then we'll finish with one final question of this chapter, which is called On a Razor's Edge. So to stay balanced on the edge, one needs a strategic understanding of the specific tools and constraints that come with one's authority. Yet, in either case, an authority figure cuts his feet. Ian, what actions looking forward are you being called to take? Well, you know, Michael, I think you touched on one of the big tensions that we feel in the movement right now is what is the balance between compromise and our aspirations? What is the balance between 
engaging with folks who don't like us very much and being true to who we are and being true to our values. And I think one of the roles that I end up playing with some of the informal authority I have in this movement space is trying to help groups grapple with that. And I don't pretend to know what the right balance is. I don't think anybody does, but there are conversations that we have to keep having and have to keep grappling with. Ian, I wish you all the best for that dance on the razor's edge. I hope you're not cutting your feet. <laughs> and I was so grateful that you were here with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real delight coming back to this book and following along with you on the podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with chapter seven of Ron Heifetz's book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, with the title, Falling Off the Edge. You can imagine this chapter directly builds from the razor's edge metaphor from this week. We'll be joined by Jevin Sue Lennox, Chief People Officer at the biotech company in Citro. Before that, Jevin was the Chief People Officer at Stitch Fix and Blue Bottle. And I can't wait to learn more about his perspective on how this framework has helped him think about people and culture development in these high growth Bay Area companies. If you like the show, press the subscribe button and leave a review that helps others to connect to these powerful adaptive leadership cases. On the Balcony is brought to you by Kono, growing and provoking leadership and hosted by me, Michael Kohler. We're produced by Polygy, editing, Riley Byrne and Daniel Link. Cover art by Kenneth Amoyo and Rosie Greenberg. Our music is called Change in Blue by Hannah Gill and The Hours. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back for episode seven on The Balcony. We'll be right back.